The words we just sang there certainly are a reflection of the heart of John the Apostle, the writer of the Gospel of John. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my heart, my life, my all. You know, uh, John, the writer of the Gospel, is also the writer of the book of Revelation. And we saw that very last stanza lived out in John's life, where they're banished to the island of Patmos. Is John crusted over with anger and frustration because life didn't turn out the way he thought. He's separated from his family, his friends. The, the closing chapters of his book, his life, are not going to close the, the American dream. He's banished into exile. But is his heart cold and crusted toward God? No. My goodness, the book of Revelation, I hope you're still referencing it, is all about his joy, his hope, his life in Christ. And in spite of his circumstances, his message to the church in every age is Christ is enough. And that's what we just sang. God is holy, the first song. He is everything. He's almighty. Holy is he. He is our hope. A mighty fortress is our God in a world where that has revolted against God. And we ourselves have done that. We have told God we don't want you. We've gone our own way. God, in amazing love, grace, and mercy, has brought us to himself. And while, as we saw in the book of Revelation, the world and the enemies of God are continuing to try to pull us back out of hatred for God, out of hatred for Christ, he is our mighty fortress. And how is that? It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. When we survey the cross, such amazing love, great price that God spent to win us to himself, to conquer Satan, to conquer our sin, and to bring us to himself, it does demand our life, our all unto Christ. And that's exactly what John is trying to do in his gospel. Open with me this morning to John chapter 2 this morning. We've made our way into the second chapter of John's gospel. And we come to one of those very familiar passages of scripture that it's so very easy to treat as casual, to treat as familiar, almost to rush past it with a sense of irreverence because we know it. We, we know it. We, we already know what it says. We've read it many times. But in John chapter 2, John is doing far more than rehearsing for us the historical account of Jesus' very first miracle. Because that's what we come upon this morning. And we know the first miracle of Jesus, the changing of water to wine. But let me tell you at the outset, this miracle is not about the miracle. It's not about changing water to wine. This story, John has inserted, he's chosen to manifest to you and I what he already knows and what he wants us to grow in, the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants us to grow in our awareness of the glory of Jesus of Nazareth so that we will believe in him. Some perhaps for the first time. For all of us, there's room to continue to grow to grow deeper in our knowledge of the wonder of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why this text is here. Will you diligently seek this Christ with John, with me? 
Will you be one who seeks to go deeper than the changing of water and wine and go to the the manifestation of the glory of Christ on display? Will you be one who at the outset right now prays, God, help me to see what this text reveals about Christ, that I may savor Him more than even when I walked in here this morning, that I may believe in Him more than even when I walked in here this morning, in the circumstances of my life I presently am going through, or the circumstances of life that are sure to come this week, I need a deeper abiding faith in Jesus. I need to see Him and know Him in this way. Will we make it our prayer this morning that we desire Him in this text? One man who knew firsthand more of the excellencies of Christ than anyone I've come across is an old Scottish pastor by the name of Robert Murray McShane. And McShane preached this. This man who knew far more of Christ than without God's help I ever will prayed this. I have little, little of Christ, yet I long for more. And if you had spent any time in some of McShane's writings, you would cringe to think this man who wrote and knew Christ in such brilliance would say, I have little, little of Christ, yet I long for more. If that was true for him, it's true for us. Does his quote there reflect your own heart this morning? Will you right now ask God, I want more of Christ, more than I have. Open my eyes right now to see the glory of Christ. Would you bow your head this morning and pray that? For your own soul, if it's the desire of your heart. And if it's not the desire of your heart, make that your prayer. Father, our earnest plea for one another is that you would help us to see Christ more clearly, more beautifully. Open our eyes to see in this miracle or this sign of changing water into wine. Help us to see the fullness of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of the message this morning, The Wine of Joy in Christ. The Wine of Joy in Christ. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor or the bad wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I want to do something a little bit different this morning. It's not the first time we've done this, but it is a little bit out of the norm. I want to start with the end of the passage first. I want to turn to verse 11, because in verse 11, the end of this narrative of this uh, day in Cana, this first miracle that Jesus does, John is actually going back to his original plan and idea for writing the gospel. If you remember our very first sermon in the gospel of John, we started in chapter 20. The very first message didn't come from chapter 1, verse 1. It came from chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where there John gives, here's the whole reason I've written this book. I want you to know, here's why I have it. Therefore, he says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. So he did a whole lot more than he wrote about which are not written in these books. But these have been written, the ones that he has included here, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John, when he is going through the miracles of Jesus, we're looking at the first of these miracles this morning. That's what other people call them. Other gospel writers call them miracles. John calls them something different. He calls them signs. And there is a profound difference between a miracle and a sign. And why, in John's mind, these miracles of Jesus are not just miracles. They're deeper than that. They're richer than that. They're signs. Miracles, there's nothing wrong with the term. Other gospel writers call these the miracles of Jesus. But miracles in and of themselves can simply be something good for those who receive them. Right? A miracle is something good that you receive. A lot of times, even today, we talk about it was a miracle. That's never in the context of something bad happening, is it? It's always something good that has happened. It was a a miracle. And so next time someone says it's a miracle, ask, you know, why is it always good? That's not exactly how God operates. He's not Santa Claus. But John takes these miracles and calls them signs because he says they point to something far more significant than themselves. Growing up, memorizing the miracles of Jesus in children's church in different venues, focusing upon the miracles of Jesus. A lot of times the focus was on the miracle itself. John says, don't stop there. You missed the whole point. The miracle is only a parable, if you will. It's a story that's demonstrating something far deeper, far more significant than the miracle itself. What it means for us is that each moment where Jesus does something miraculous, when we see Jesus do something supernatural, there's something greater going on. Don't celebrate, wow, water became wine. I wonder what God can change in my life. That's not what it's about. What is a sign? A sign is something that points to something beyond itself. When you're driving and you see a sign, it's telling you something beyond this point is coming. I'm just telling you what it is. A sign guides you to a certain event, to a certain person. 
and a sign, John says here, these signs of Jesus point us to a person, to Jesus. Why? Exactly what he said at the beginning. So that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And having believed on him, you may have life in his name. Most people who followed Jesus around in his public ministry, and he had a mass of people. And one of the things we're going to see coming up in John's gospel, Jesus himself does not get excited by the number of people following him. There's a lot of people, and Jesus is well aware of the fact that most who are following him are not following him. They're following what they hope he can do for them. Most people who followed Jesus around, Jesus is going to show us, coming up soon, wanted to see miracles. They didn't want to see what the miracle pointed to. They weren't interested in the sign behind that the, that the miracle pointed to. They wanted the miracle itself. They wanted whatever Jesus could do for them. Their bellies full, their children healed. They wanted themselves entertained. Wow, what's he going to do next? As though Jesus is kind of a, a circus freak. They were following Jesus, and yet with a heart that was disinterested in Jesus. With a heart and a mind that was hostile to Jesus. Do you see the difference? They didn't want what the miracle pointed to. They wanted the miracle. And Jesus is going to expose them as self-seeking hypocrites who only played the follower of Christ as long as Christ played to them, as long as Christ gave them what they wanted, as long as Christ came to me on my terms. I'm a follower of Jesus. It goes back to what we were talking about this morning in the prayer meeting. Making life, our family, our friends, our finances, our church, our job about me, my wants, my whims, my wishes. And as long as those things serve what I want, I'm in. But the moment they don't, I'm grumpy, I'm calloused, I'm angry. I'm going to make life miserable for my family, for my coworkers, for my church family, for the world around me. I'm just going to be a hard-hearted person. And Jesus says, he's well aware. He sees into the heart. Those who, they're not interested in him. They're only interested in themselves and how Christ may be a means to what they want. It appears that by the time John is writing this gospel, he's picked up on what Jesus saw. He's picked up on the inherent wickedness of man. I don't mind Jesus as long as Jesus serves me. As long as Jesus can do something for me, I'm, I'm, I'm all in on Jesus. So John writes... And he wants to be very clear here in the very first of these miracles. These miracles are not about what Jesus can do for you. These miracles are signs that point you beyond the miracle to something deeper, something richer, something vital to you. John is writing and he's sharing this, not that we would ooh and awe water into wine that we would ooh and awe and give our lives to the one who is behind it all. 
So John writes in verse 11, again, beginning at the end of the narrative, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and what? What does it say? Somebody read it to me. And manifested his glory. John is setting the tone right off the bat. In every one of the miracles slash signs that are to come, this is what they are about. It is about the glory of Jesus Christ. As we look at the, the miracle here in John chapter 2 this morning, there, we, we have to see beyond water being turned into wine. My prayer for us, my prayer for me this, this week has been that God would give us eyes to see that. And that by seeing the sign, the glory of Christ, we would believe it with the whole of our being. That we would savor this Christ. And that we would want this Christ more than we want anything else. I'll die to myself. If I can have this Christ, he is what I want. Referencing again, Robert Murray McShane, he preached this. If you are under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, if you're under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, listen to this. A mere head knowledge of Christ will not satisfy your soul. That's where many of us live today. I'm not talking, yes, many in this room, but in Christianity as a whole. We take a lot of joy and comfort in that we know a lot about Jesus, head knowledge. But what McShane here says, if you're under the teaching of the Holy Spirit, a mere head knowledge of Christ will not satisfy your soul. Rather, you will long for a relish of Christ in your heart, a, a captivation of Christ in your heart to taste and see Christ, that He is glorious and that He is all-satisfying. That's what John wants us to get. Not walking out of here, Jesus is all-powerful and can change water into wine. I mean, that is true. But that sounds awfully cold and callous. We can rehearse that and it not do anything in here, right? And to be perfectly honest, as I look around, there's nobody in this room who didn't already know that. What McShane and what John is trying to get here is that this knowledge and even a deeper knowledge of what this miracle does would, would so penetrate here that it changes us. It changes our joys, our affections, our hopes that we would begin to die to the world and die to ourselves because I must have this one. And anything less than that is not biblical Christianity. That's why Jesus on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't I know that? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you here. It was never here. Satan's probably the greatest theologian walking the earth. He knows more about God and Jesus than we do, yet he's not going to heaven when, he, when it's all said and done. Because it doesn't have a heart that relishes Christ and says, he is what I must have. He's what I've been looking for. Oh, God, I repent of my self-centeredness, my selfishness, my wants. My, it's all about me. I repent. He is what my life is all about. That's why John is writing. That's what the signs are about. That's what he's seeking in our souls. And I pray what you're seeking as well. Anything less 
will be nothing but head knowledge. And it won't change a thing. Jesus manifests His glory first through this sign in Cana. Through this miracle of turning water to wine. The eyes of His disciples, there's I think five of them if I've counted correctly at this point. They knew something of Jesus. I believe they were already converted in their calling and turning to Jesus in the previous chapter. But these disciples of Jesus are getting a glimpse of something they had not previously seen or known. And every day they're walking with Jesus, spending time with Jesus. He's manifesting His glory. He's manifesting His glory. He's manifesting His glory more and more and more into them. He's pulling back the veil, showing more and more and more so that they will see Him and believe upon Him and live upon Him and give all to Him. Biblical Christianity. And to be like them. We saw this two weeks ago. You got to see what they saw. The glory of Christ must be unveiled to us as well. So let's think about this sign together that reveals to us, according to verse 11, the glory of Christ. Go back to verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his and the mother Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we're given a little bit of a chronological update. The third day, this is the third day after, I believe, the calling of Nathaniel. So if you go back to the end of chapter one, we said that John, when he begins the public ministry of Jesus, sits out to the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. It's kind of an allusion to the seven days of creation, the beginning of all things. Now the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, this third day, if you do the math, this is the seventh day. Cana. It's an interesting place for this first sign to take place. It speaks a lot to the heart of God. Cana was a nothing place, absolutely nothing. It's about 10 miles north of Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. So Jesus was familiar with Cana. But Cana was a very simple, humble, rural town in the middle of nowhere. Regular folks just lived in this town. And don't rush past that. This is where the king of the cosmos decides to come and manifest His glory first. It speaks to a lot of the heart of God and grace and mercy. This is the place where the King of the universe comes to first manifest His glory. Down, I mean, this is the depth of condescension. He's taken on human form, born in Bethlehem, in the whole Nazareth, in Tecana? I mean, my goodness, this is a humble people, a regular people. No nobles, no kings. This is not the elite, lowly Cana. And this is where Jesus comes to manifest his glory. The context is a wedding. And time's not going to allow us to spend a lot of time thinking about that, but I don't think that's an accident. I don't think that, well, that's an interesting tidbit. I think John has in mind here, he wants us to understand it's absolutely appropriate for Jesus to be in audience at this wedding. We don't know who the groom is. We don't know who the bride is. We don't know who the family is. We don't, we don't know Jesus' relation. But nonetheless, it's absolutely appropriate for Jesus to be in attendance to this wedding. Why? Because he's the guest of honor at every wedding as the creator of the institution of marriage. Marriage 
It's not man's idea. It's not man's to do with as we please. It's God's idea. And every wedding and every marriage invites Christ into it, whether they know it or not. And then how they reject or bring Christ in as the centerpiece of it all depends on God's work upon their hearts. So it's absolutely appropriate for Jesus to be at this wedding. He created marriage. He created weddings. He ordained it all the way back in Genesis 2. But Jesus here is invited to this wedding in Cana. And just contextually, we know a few things about weddings back in this day. It was a massive, massive celebration. The wedding feast would usually go on for at least a week, oftentimes two weeks. And it was, uh, it was um, just a, a massive celebration. There was always a betrothal period that led up to this week-long, two-week-long celebration, where in the betrothal period, the groom and bride were legally married, which is when we read about Mary and Joseph being betrothed, giving birth. They, they were legally wed, but had not consummated the wedding. They had not enjoyed the benefits of marriage, but they were legally considered husband and wife. And through that betrothal period, after it comes time for the groom to come and to take his bride from his family to pay the dowry, the groom would come with his friends, and that would be the start of the celebration. He would have to pay to take the bride to be his own, much like Christ paid to bring us to himself upon the cross. And the groom would come and take the bride, and it would begin a week-long, two-week-long celebration, a time of banquet, which would end with the actual wedding ceremony itself. Lots of food, lots of drink, lots of dancing and partying. You can go back and read the testimony of days gone by. It was a time of celebration. One thing you didn't want to happen at this celebration is what happened in verse 3. When the wine ran out, that was embarrassing. To run out of food or drink at this, I mean, that was devastating or embarrassing to run out. I mean, we know that on a contemporary level. If you have a party or a get-together, and you, I mean, how embarrassing is it to get halfway, uh, half the people come through the line to get food, and then you still got, and there's no food left. You've run out. You're embarrassed. You're frantic. Well, there was far more pressure even in, in days gone by. It would have been humiliating for them to run out of wine, which is exactly what they happen. Now, important to know in this sign of changing water to wine, I encourage you to spend time with this this week. All throughout the Bible, wine is symbolic of joy. Now, when I say that, I'm not minimizing they used wine, it was alcoholic wine, all that there. But for the purposes of this sign this morning, we've got to understand that all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the Old Testament, even the promises of God about the coming Messiah and, and ushering in wine into it, it's about joy. Wine throughout Scripture is symbolic of joy, the exuberant side of life. So keep that in the back of your mind as we're going through this. So in verse 3 we read, they ran out of wine. And so Mary, the mother of Jesus, who most commentators suggest that she was somewhat responsible for food and drink at this. We don't know how, we don't know what the relation was, but it's an interesting tidbit. She's the one who goes to Jesus and says to him, again, verse 
4, or verse 3, they have no wine. Verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. So Mary comes. She, as the mother of Jesus, she knows who Jesus is, right? The angel told her at the birth, so she's in a way, if anybody can do something about this, my son can. There's something about him that no, most of these people here don't know, but I know Jesus, they've run out of wine. She knows what he's capable of doing. But in that moment, catch this. Her pursuit of Christ is not about who he is, is it? It's about what? What he can do for her. That's why we see Jesus' response to his dear mother. Jesus, the discerner of hearts, right? Oh, I pray we tremble at this. I said this back when we were going through the book of Revelation in those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Beloved church, please tremble when we see how Christ is so in tune with his church. He's not excited that you're doing church. He's looking at the heart. He's tremble. He's taking stock. Same thing here. Jesus knows what's in the heart of his mother. She is simply exercising parental authority, maybe her responsibility over the party. Right now she's in need and she needs what Jesus can do for her. Fix an embarrassing problem to which Jesus sees right through and, if you will, denies it. Woman, what does that have to do with me? Jesus is not being disrespectful here. Again, we kind of don't use contemporary ears when you hear him say, woman, that's not, it's not that way. It was a term of endearment. He's not disrespecting his mother, but he's making it clear. Your instruction to me, your authority to, has no bearing on what I do right now. Yes, you're my mother, but you know there's an even greater relationship here that supersedes the mother-son relationship. You know who I am. I'm the king of the universe. And calling her woman is almost his way of using that side of himself, the king of the universe side. And Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? What does that have to do with this? It means this. There is coming a time in Jesus' life where he will surrender himself to the will of man. Man will desire to take him and do something with him, and he's going to surrender himself and let them do it. Where is that? At the cross. He is going to give himself up to man to man's will. He will subject himself. He will be humiliated. He will be arrested. He will be tried, scorned, beaten, tattered, torn, murdered, crucified. That's a very specific hour. And that hour of giving himself over to man's wants has not yet come. So for Mary to instruct him, hey, do this for me, usurped his authority. He will give up that authority momentarily at the cross, but until then, he is who he is. He is the Messiah, and he will not have anything to do with it. 
So she recognizes her sin. She recognizes she's robbing her son of his glory, that she's made him an object of just what he can do for her. So she turns to the, uh, to the disciples and those around her, and what is her response? It's almost, you can almost hear the repentance in her, her words here. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. He's in charge. You may not understand why this mother is telling you to do whatever the son says, but I'm telling you. Do whatever he says. She's received his rebuke. She's received his correction. And and you can sense the repentance here. She's returned back to a person, back to Christ as king. He's the one who has ultimate authority, not me, Mary says. I'm his mother. But I don't have ultimate authority over him because of who he is. She doesn't get special treatment for being his mother. She's not allowed to take the king of the universe and make him her butler to do what she wants when she needs it because she's in a bind. She must be just like everyone else. You bow the knee to this man. You worship this man. He's the authority. So we come to verses 6 through 10. Mary has told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And we're told that at this wedding, there are six stone water pots. All of that is essential. Bear with me now. Six stone water pots. These water pots held anywhere from 20 to 30 gallons, the text tells us. So we're more familiar probably with 50-gallon drums. So think about that. Cut it in half. That's what you're looking at. Six of those things. And these water pots had a very spit. They weren't just laying around like trash. They were part of the ceremonial custom of purification. Meaning when you came into this party, these, these containers were full of water. This is what you washed in. According to the law, you washed in these containers. Basically, you didn't eat or drink until you first cleaned yourself and everything was cleaned using the water in these water pots. Now, What's interesting here, keeping that as the context, these were very important water pots. What's interesting here is we read that they were empty. They were empty. They're made of stone and they're empty. Why is that interesting? Because John sees these empty stone water water pots And he sees exactly what we saw him doing in the book of Revelation. Again, so much of while we handle Revelation, while we did, is because this is how John writes. This is is how he writes in his gospel. This is how he writes in his epistles. He's a very vivid imagery writer and author. And he sees these empty water pots and realizes there's a connection between empty stone pots and the spiritual condition of the church in his day, particularly those religious Jews. Why is six significant? Six stone pots. Six is the number of man. On the sixth day, God created man. All throughout Scripture, six symbolic of man. We saw that in Revelation. So again, in Revelation, we weren't trying to create it to make it work. It's always been the case. We're just being consistent. And here, same thing he does in Revelation here. Six is the number of man. These six stone water pots are a reflection of man in this day. 
Arthur Pink writes about this, writes this. Judaism, the religious system of the day, still existed as a religious system, but it ministered no glory of God to the heart. So what is he just saying? Judaism in this day, people gathered together for church, but there was no hunger for God. He goes on to say, it had degenerated into a, does this sound familiar? A cold, mechanical, routine, utterly destitute of joy in God. People gathered together. They were religious. But there was no joy in God. There was no wine. What does wine represent all throughout the Bible? I told you a moment ago, joy. Exuberance of life in God. There was no joy in the hearts of the people of God in this day. Just cold, stony hearts, destitute of God, indifferent to God, having drifted from God. But every Sabbath, they still gathered and did their religious duty. In verse 7, Jesus commands the servants to take those empty, six empty stone water pots and to fill them up to the brim. With what? What did he say to fill them up with? Fill the jars with water. Do we just kind of move past that? That's cool. Water. What else would he put in there? Beloved, we've got to know our Bible better. What does water represent all throughout the Word of God? All throughout. It's always a symbol of the written Word of God. It wasn't that long ago we did a sermon series through the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul speaks about what Christ does for His church. And there he writes so that he might sanctify her, make us more like Christ, having cleansed her, what do you usually cleanse with? Water. Cleansed her with the washing of water with the Word. He identifies what the washing of water there that Christ uses to make us more like Christ. It's the Word. That's just one example. We go to many different places. The the the. Water is always symbolic of the written word. So how does joy get brought into, how does wine get put into, joy get put into stone empty hearts? What did Jesus say fill it up with? Water, with the word of God. By washing with the word of God, this is what God uses to cultivate joy within us. Is that, is that how we think today? I'll be honest with you. I don't think it is. We tend to find our joy. If I want joy in my life, it comes through the right circumstances, getting the right possession, having the right job, the right finances, the right retirement, the right church, the right friends. If, if I have those things in line, joy. But if I don't, emptiness, crustiness, gloominess, Walk around with a frown on my face all day. But here, in order to produce 
joy in the people of God again, Jesus instructs, put water in there. Because he knows it's the Word of God that cultivates this kind of joy. Only the Word of God, which reveals to us God, that reveals to us what we read this morning in Psalm 16, 11, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In ye, at your right hand is enjoyment. If I'm going to find joy, I've got to find you. And where do we find God? Not in creation, not on the golf course, not at the lake. It is in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit, all throughout Scripture, this is how salvation happens, takes the Word of God and cleanses us, regenerates us, makes us new through the water of the Word and brings within us a joy in God. It's interesting here. Jesus tells them to go and fill these with water. That wasn't what you drank at a party. Water wasn't the answer Mary was looking for. We've run out of drink. She wanted more wine, which was in keeping with the day. You find it interesting. You think the servants kind of may have even been a little perplexed. She said, do whatever he tells us to do. This is crazy. He told us to go fill them with water. This ain't going to work. This ain't going to happen. Who is this kook? Why should we listen to him? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Fill these things with water. But hey, you know, she said to do what he says. But yet, isn't that the way of Christ in the world? It always sounds stupid, foolish, unwise. We live in a day today, we're instructed by God to do things that just really sound out of touch with reality. That the key to the Christian life is looking unto Jesus. That's the Christian life. Look to Him daily, walking with Him, clinging. Man, that just sounds so out of touch with reality. I'm dealing with real hurts, real pains, real struggles. And this is your answer? Look unto Jesus? That's crazy. That's foolish. That makes no sense. You're not listening to me. You're not hearing what my problem is. This isn't going to fix this. That's the same issue the servants would have been having. Put water in these pots. That's not going to fix the problem. No. The problem is us. We have vastly underestimated God and the sufficiency that God has put into His Word, into the water, into Jesus Christ. And if we can't find joy in Jesus, the weakness is not in Him, it's in us. Listen, you've been listening to the same message. I've been listening to it for years now. Looking to Jesus, looking to Jesus is all. He's all sufficient. Are you any happier? Are you finding yourself growing in joy? I would be inclined to say one of two things. One, you're either disobeying, you're not looking unto Jesus, which means you're not a Christian. Or two, you're not doing it with the right motives, the right heart. You're doing it like a Pharisee who does your religious duty. And all these years, maybe you've got a whole lot more knowledge of Jesus up here. But if it hasn't turned to wine in here, if the water hasn't turned to wine, the Word of God produced joy in here, the problem's in you or me. It may sound foolish and out of touch, but 
this is the way of God. These servants in verse 8 obeyed. And little did they know. They were participating in one of the most miraculous events in all of human history. What they thought was foolish, what they thought can't change anything. I won't change, it won't change anything. Little did they know. They were about to experience one of the most amazing transformations in all of history. And on the outset, it looked so stupid, so foolish, so out of touch with reality. Oh, if only we would just simply do what the gospel calls us to do, even when it sounds foolish. I promise you, Christ is enough. And you find this Christ in the Word of God from a heart that, like McShane, I have so little, I want more. I want to see more of the glory of this one and let him change you. Well, the servants obeyed. They took, they filled these empty stone pots with water, took it to the the master whose responsibility it was to drink and taste of everything before presenting it to the guests. He tasted the water that had been turned to wine. And here's the sign. The sign that manifests the glory of Jesus. We don't have any abracadabra. We don't have any physical manifestation of when Jesus did this, how Jesus did this. Did he have a magic wand? No, he didn't, but... There's nothing. It just simply, they filled it with water, and somewhere in filling it with water and taking it to the master, God did something and turned the water into not just wine, the best wine he's ever tasted. And the master was beside himself, even to the point of calling the bridegroom over saying, man, I don't know if your awareness of things, you've just wasted this really good wine because usually... You serve the good stuff at first, and then once everyone's drunk, you can just serve them the bad stuff. They don't know the difference. But you've saved the best for last. They're not even going to recognize it. No one serves the good wine last. How did this happen? Well, the obvious answer is the power of Christ, the sovereignty of Christ. And in this first sign, Jesus is showing us his authority, his sovereignty, his power over all things, over marriage, over his mother, over the servants, over the head waiter, the master, over the bridegroom, and his power over the water. Jesus changed the molecular structure of water into something totally different in just a matter of seconds. Maybe it was instantaneously, like the creation account. He changed it to wine, the best wine they'd ever tasted. And this is the sign. Not that Jesus can transform the circumstances of your life. He can. But he is also working from an eternal plan that he's not going to divert. What this sign symbolizes to us is about the glory of Christ. That he 
is the wine. The water to wine. The Word of God. What does it point us to? To Jesus Christ. Christ is the true wine that fills the hearts of His people. To those that say, Jesus is mine. He is mine. Not, not, I'm going to heaven when I die. Not, I'm a good church person. The one who says, Jesus is mine. He, I don't care about the rest. We talked about, I don't care if I go to heaven when I die. I must have Jesus. If he's in hell, I want Jesus. I don't care. Jesus is what I want. To that person, that's a true believer. To that person, they are so saturated with joy in Him that the circumstances of life, they are able to endure and persevere like John on the island of Patmos. I don't care. As long as I have this one, he is my all. He is my joy. I can have no satisfaction, no joy in anything but him. That's the sign. That's who this Jesus is. And beloved, I say this with all love. If that's not who Jesus is to to you, fall on your face and beg and plead God to open your eyes to be converted. Anything less than that is not true Christianity. The six empty stone pots, symbolic of mankind, the the religious system of the day, church people. We're going to hit on, I've said this in most of these messages, and you'll get tired of it, but we as children of God, we often want to identify ourselves with the Pauls and the Peters, the, the mature, spiritually mature Pauls and Peters. Throughout Scripture, you can challenge me on this. I'm going to win. <laughs> we are identified with Pharisees. We are all throughout. That's the reason they exist, because that's the reality that we're, we're battling up against. And Pharisees don't see their need for Christ. They don't find Christ at all. They'll get Christ out of here because he's ruining what's mine, my church, my life, my ceremony, my rituals, what I want. Get him. He messes things up. But the Christian says, no, I die to all these things that I might have Christ. Because in him is a joy and satisfaction that I can't find in anything else. Beloved, is that who Christ is to you? This is John's point. This is the sign of the miracle. Jesus is the divine joy, the divine wine. Is that your experience? Don't answer that quickly. And don't just throw the answer out there to make yourself feel better. The warnings of Jesus all throughout Scripture. So many people on that day are going to expect there. They have entry into an eternal rest with Jesus. And he turns them away. Because although they were religious, it was never, he is all. Christ is all. That's the message of the gospel. Christ is all. If you this morning find you're lacking in that fullness of joy department, then you this week would benefit from going back to this miracle and just prayerfully meditating on it again and again and again. Not because you don't know the story of Jesus changing water to wine, but because your heart has not seen the glory of Christ on display. Does that make sense? You've got to get to the sign and don't move on until Christ is this to your soul. Beg and plead God 
to help you see what John saw, what John knew, and the reason he gave us this sign, this miracle, that joy that is in Christ would be found. All of us this morning are just like these empty water pots to one degree or another. All right, again, in John's gospel, we're always going to be the lesser. And we don't want to see this about ourselves, but we're the empty water pots. Now, some of us this morning may be completely empty, completely empty. You can be religious and yet no joy in God whatsoever. Others, maybe you've believed in Christ as Savior, but your well is running dry. Your heart is cold and callous and crusty. And you hear these things about Jesus and joy in him, but it's been so many years. You've just kind of, and you're, this is who I am. This is what, no, no. The Christian life is one, as you get older, you don't get colder and crustier. You get more joyful. You get more in tune in walking with God. It's the exact opposite of what we tend to see today. Again, John Stott this morning, I opened with the story about the little girl. He told another story about a Salvation Armored drummer in England who was beating his drum so hard, the band leader had to tell him, tone it down, don't make so much noise, right? We know that as parents. And in his little accent, the little boy said, well, God bless you, sir, but I got a problem. Since I've been converted, I'm so happy I could dead gum bust this drum. And beloved, that's biblical Christianity. Since I've been converted, since I have my Christ, Christ has hold of me and by his grace I have hold of him. I don't care about anything else. Life isn't going my way. My health is poor. My finances aren't great. My family, my church, my... You fill in the blank. I, I don't care. I just don't care. I have Christ. And that's my all. How many of us that's true of us? You see, we're those empty water pots. And this sign is given to us to remind us or to teach us for the first time. This life, if it's anything less than joy in Christ alone, is not the Christian life. And we need to be filled. Put it well into it. Water, the Word of God, and let God do what only He can do. Take this. And in, even in your circumstances of life, turn it into wine, which is what? Joy in Christ. I have no doubt. Some of you just heard me say that. And you shrug your shoulders, roll your eyes, and say, that just sounds so foolish. What do we expect you to say? Let's just get this thing over with. Let's get out of here. This is the gospel. Jesus is the one who takes the water and produces wine in us, in him, that supersedes anything in life. Now might you and I pray that God would give us the grace to put it into action.